The term culture has been co-opted to mean all sorts of things. Is culture a Taylor Swift concert filled with 10,000s of Swifties? Is it social sophistication? Is it watching episodes of Yellowstone? Or is it the party life on the Las Vegas Strip? Maybe it's something more than that. Here's a question. For the Christian, is culture to be rejected, embraced, or redeemed? I want to tell you, if you want to reach the culture, you have to learn to be able to read the culture, and that is when you will be able to influence the culture. Hey, good morning. morning. Good to see you today. If you need a Bible, great time of worship, wasn't it? Man, just the sweet presence of God. If you need a Bible today, get your hand up high. We're in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Get your hand up high. Going to want the Word of God in your hand today. As you follow along, as we read. And um, good to be with you guys today. We are, as Desiree said so eloquently, starting the third part of our, our series. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things over the next 11 weeks. I just want to share a couple of them with you. We're going to be talking about culture, truth, what is love, that's, I know, a Tina Turner song. I don't know why that just popped into my head right now. <laughs> what has love got to do with it? Um, we're going to talk about if God is love, why is there a hell? Why is there evil in the world? We're going to talk about same-sex attraction, marriage, singleness, gender dysphoria, the transgender movement. Uh, we're going to be unpacking the idea that Christianity is oppressive. We're going to talk about suffering in the world, the hijacking of the American mind, and the exclusive claims of Christ. Y'all ready for that? We're going to have our hands full. It's going to be really good. Stand with me today. <clears throat> Stand with me today. We're going to start today in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And um, I just want to tell you on the front side, there's a little heavy lifting today. All right? There's a little heavy lifting. That means I need your heart involved. I need your brain involved. And you think, I came to church, Pastor, I didn't come to have my brain involved, you know, because, because, I mean, some of you are like, my team's playing football right now, man, it's the opening day, and that's, that's what's on your mind. Um, but this is a really important study, it's going to lay the framework for everything else that we're going to be talking about over the next 11 weeks. And you're going to see today in the Apostle Paul a pattern in his ministry that I'm going to be encouraging you and our church to follow. And so um, I've thought about this portion of Scripture before we read it today and just like parachute into it. I want to give you a little bit of context, okay? Because the Apostle Paul, you're going to discover, is in the city of Athens. He's by himself. Um, he has gone before Silas and Timothy. And as he's in the city of Athens, his heart is provoked within him. He's grieved. He's deeply disturbed over the idolatry that he sees all around him. It was a very complex cultural moment. There were Jews in the city, there were common people in the marketplace, and then there were philosophers because Athens was like the epicenter for intellectualism in the world at the time. All of the great thinkers, all of the great orators and speakers would come to Athens, they would come to this place called the Areopagus, some of you know it is Mars Hill, and they would present their new thought. This was the way it worked. Paul is in this cultural setting by himself. He's deeply grieved, right? He's reacting to 
the polytheism and the lostness that he sees in the culture, but he doesn't just react to it, he reads it to reach it, okay? He reads it to reach it. He pays very close attention to what's happening around him. He's reading the culture because ultimately he, his mission was not just to influence culture, his mission was to reach people. By the way, you know that that's our mission? Everybody know that today? All right, check that out. You're like, hey, pastor, that's the message. Just say, in Jesus' name, amen, and we can go have brunch. No, <clears throat> we just started. So the Bible says in verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Well, what did Paul do? So he reasoned. Paul didn't just complain. He didn't just attack the culture. The Bible says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, how often? Every day with those who happen. Could you imagine like just getting hit up by the Apostle Paul? Like, you know, I mean, he just strikes. You're just going to buy your vegetables. And then there's this little Jewish fired up Jesus following guy who starts like sharing the gospel with you. How cool would that have been? Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was, he, what was he doing? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Side note today, people, our message doesn't change. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the ancient internet, okay? That was what was happening here. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, check this out. Check how he reads the culture and uses his reading and points of connection with them to lead them to biblical truth. I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So, I mean, polytheistic, an altar to every God, and then just in case they missed a God, right? They're thinking, hey, we don't want to offend the God that we don't know, so we're going to make an altar to the God that we don't know just in case there is that God because we don't want him to be offended. So Paul uses that. Uh, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Check this truth, biblical truth out. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. People, God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Man, if you came today and you don't yet know God, he's closer than you can imagine. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. Check this out. As even some of your own poets have said, he, he now like pulls something out of their own culture um, to create uh, a resonance with him for the message of the gospel. For we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Check this out now. He gets to the point, gospel presentation. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To what? To repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's that man's name? Jesus! Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And Father, thank you so much, God, for your word today. We pray, speak to us, transform us, and change us. Equip us, God, for the spiritual awakening that you will bring in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is culture? You know, this is, I think, a, a very legitimate question for us to ask. Um, it's a necessary question for us to ask, but the truth is this, don't just assume that it's an easy question to answer. We had a man on the ground at UNLV this last week, and he interviewed some students with this very question. I want you to just give a listen to the different answers that they gave. So one of them is, how would you define culture? Culture, I would define culture as like, a, you know, people you're around and like, how you guys do things. The routines and kind of mindset that you follow your day-to-day -day life with that you most likely have had since you were a small child. Yeah, I think like culture is like your ethnic background, like what you believe in, what your family like taught you, um, what defines you and your character. It's uh, a good question. I define it probably like kind of just like a background, you know, history, you know, where one thing originates from, you know, and it can either be like multiple people, but, you know, it just starts like kind of like a big family. And, you know, everybody in one culture can be a family, even though they never met each other. So I feel like it's just kind of like a tradition of family, like that just goes, yeah. Yeah, you know, there are pieces to all of those answers that are actually true. But sometimes when we talk about culture, we're thinking social sophistication. Uh, we live in a, a city where the vast majority of us are foodies, right? And so when we think of like culture, we think of a very sophisticated, refined palate. Um, some of us, you know, we, we just move right into pop culture. And like I said on the intro video, sometimes when we think culture, we think of something like a Taylor Swift concert, 70,000 Swifties singing their guts out and creating an earthquake, which actually, actually happened. But it is a ubiquitous term. And by ubiquitous, I just simply mean it, it, the, the term permeates our society, like we talk about culture warrior or culture wars or cancel culture. If you're a coach and you're trying to develop, you know, a team that wins, you talk about a winning culture. When we think about the underbelly of our society, there are terms like rape culture or drug culture or culture of exploitation. 
And so the term is ubiquitous, and it's used in a variety of different ways. The word comes, and you know I have to do stuff like this, but the word comes from a Latin word, uh, cultura. And when the word was developed, um, of course, it was developed in an agricultural era, and it referred to growing or cultivation or to tend or to cultivate. In fact, the Middle English word that came from the Latin and German word, word meant the cultivation of soil. And so when you, think about, when you think about culture, what you're thinking about is all of the influences, just think of a picture of a plant, right? All of the influences around that living organism that are affecting it, uh, shaping it, influencing it. Um, if it's, you know, if that plant is going to grow up and produce vegetables and fruit, um, oftentimes you can tell the difference by biting into a, a vegetable or, you know, like, like a cucumber or something like that, or an apple. You can tell, was this, was this uh, uh, the product of hydroponics? Was this uh, the product of, you know, um, a farmer who was very intentional about making sure there were no pesticides? What was the soil of influence? Because the soil of influence affects the living thing. And that is true for all of us. All of us are shaped by culture. All of us are being influenced sociologically uh, by philosophy and, and education. We're born into a family where we're socialized. We're impacted by the arts and by media on a daily basis. And so just think of that picture, but put in your mind a human being being developed in the, in the culture, in the large sense, the overarching culture, but then also there are microcultures and there are subcultures. Boston University defined culture like this. They said culture is all of the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. I would add to that, they're received, they're confronted, and they're recreated because culture is not a static thing. Now, some of us, when we think of the word culture or, you know, culture as a topic, some of us just think in negative terms. But remember, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, it is God who created culture. And God created humans to recreate culture. There is a culture that God created before the fall. There is a culture that came after the fall. We know that after the fall, sin influences everything that humanity creates. And that includes culture and it includes social constructs. And so it does beg the question today, what are we called to reach? What are we called to reach? Are we called to reach culture? Are we called to reach people? Is that an either-or proposition, or is it a both-and? And I want to suggest to you that it is a mixture of both. Remember, and if you agree with this, you can say amen. Don't say amen yet, because I haven't said it. <laughs> Our primary mission as Christians is to reach people. Amen. All right, that's good. I'm glad you guys know that. Like, at least 40 to 50% of you know that. The Bible says in the Great Commission, right, Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, go into all the world and make disciples, or go make disciples of all nations. Nations not being political structures, but the Greek word is ethne. We're talking of all people groups. 
We're talking about the believer um, being sent by God into a variety of different cultural contexts with the purpose of leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. This is an important distinction. Uh, Andrew Crouch, who's kind of a you know, cultural guru today in Christian circles, said this. He said, our mission is not primarily to reach the culture, but to love our neighbor. Our neighbor is not an abstract collective noun, but a real person in a real place. And so the, like the overall working point that we're going to have for the next 11 weeks is this. It's up on the screen for you today. The Christian is called by God to reach people with the gospel in part by reading, redeeming, confronting, and creating culture. Like that's what we're going to be kind of centered on for the next 11 weeks, and then there will be all sorts of different varieties um, of situations and subcultures and uh, microcultures and people being influenced by those things that we're going to be, be, that we will be addressing helping us navigate how to bring the gospel to people in those particular circumstances. But make no mistake about it, the Christian is called by God to reach people with the gospel in part by reading, redeeming, confronting, and creating culture. And remember, the vision of Awaken Las Vegas is this. We are seeking to bring a spiritual awakening to Las Vegas and the world through the love of Jesus Christ. That's our vision, right? That is our vision. And what we're going to examine today is the way that Paul did that in Athens. If we're going to do this effectively in the culture that God has has placed us today, there are three things that we need to consider. Number one, we need to be aware of our cultural moment. We need to be aware of our cultural moment. Um, I love this about the Apostle Paul. Uh, He did react he did react. Like there was a reaction in in verse 16 that you see from Paul. There's a visceral reaction. There's a grief. There's a burden. There's a disturbance, like not in the force. I'm not going all Star Wars on you today, but there was a disturbance within him because he knew God and he was bothered by the lostness of people. Like here he's in this very complex cultural situation and he sees the you know, the influence of polytheism and the lostness of people, and it grieves his heart. And the Apostle Paul doesn't then just go sit on some seat of judgment and pontificate about all the ills of culture. I love what he does. He gets after the people. Did you notice that? Like right after the grief and the burden, the Bible says, so he went to the Jews into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. And then once he was done with that, he cruised out into the marketplace where everyone was gathered and people are bartering and selling. And then he's just talking to anybody he can talk to. That grief and that burden in his heart um, produced within him a desire to reach out because fundamentally Paul himself had been transformed and changed by the gospel. And then as he's ministering to the people in the marketplace and and the Jews in the synagogues, there's philosophers, super intellectuals, you know, I mean, these people with multiple degrees after their name, and they're hearing something new, and they were all interested in the new thing. And so they're like, hey, Paul, you need to come cruise with us to the Areopagus. You need to come to Mars Hill. Like, this is the, the epicenter where all the smart people are at, and you need to share with everybody these things that you're talking about, because we love to hear a new thing. We love to hear a new thing. And this was the thing about the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who lived in two worlds. 
Paul was a man who lived in two worlds. You know who Paul was. He was Saul. He, you, you know who he was? Who was he? He was Saul of what? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was deeply steeped in the law, the tradition, and the history of the Jewish people. All things Hebrew, he was preeminent among his peers. But he was a man who was also raised in the Greek culture of Tarsus. He understood Hellenism. He understood the Greek thinkers. He, he understood the overarching cultural philosophies that were prevalent at the time. I'm not saying that we all can be the Apostle Paul, but there, there needs to be some awareness. Paul knew that for the Jew, the Jew was seeking a sign. The Jew was seeking a sign. In fact, he would say this um, to those who were in Corinth in his first epistle, Jews seek a sign, Greeks seek, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ in him crucified. He was... He was aware, though. He understood that the Jewish people were into the supernatural. They were looking for God to move. They had this messianic desire that they were hoping would be fulfilled. And then he knew that the Greek people were all about wisdom and intellect and the new thing that could come that would enhance or um, develop their ideas. I'm just saying to you, from like an overall cultural point of view, Paul knew what was going on. And because he knew what was going on, he was able to bring the gospel in very, and I'm going to use a term today that, you know, I'll describe later. I don't have the time for it today to, to, to go into deep description, but he brought it in a very relevant way. So you say to me today, what is the cultural moment in the West? Like if that's true back then 2,000 years ago, and Paul got in both cultures, Jewish and Greek, what really the overall cultural moment was, what cultural moment are we in today? And I would say to you today that we are in a post-Christian, secular, progressive, urban, digital moment. You go ahead and write that down right now. Get those little fingers moving this morning, all right? I think that we are in a post-Christian, secular, progressive, urban, digital moment. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe to you today, like the overall cultural moment that we're in with the overarching philosophy that has become prevalent in most people's thinking. And I want to do that today because it's helpful for you to understand, because I know some of you, especially Gen Xers and, and Boomers. Some of you are like, Gen, what is a Boomer? I don't, I don't even know what a Boomer is. If you do know what a Gen Xer and a Boomer is... Um, and you are one of those, raise your hand today. Gen Xers and boomers, raise, raise your hand. Okay, so, so got a lot of young people in this church or people who have no idea what I'm talking about whatsoever. So listen, this is the thing. You look at society and culture today and there's an angst in your heart. There's an angst in your heart. You're, this is what you're thinking. You may think it in different terms, but you're like, what the heck is going on? Like that's what it comes down to. It's like, what in the world has happened to people's thinking is there's no com there seems to be no common sense. There seems to be no consistency in thinking. There seems to be no common things that we can converse about or talk to in the marketplace today because people seem to be living in a totally different world. 
You, you look at the culture that you're in today and you see certain things happening. We're going to address these challenging, difficult aspects of our society today. But you look at them and you think, man, how is it that we have drifted so far from the, from the values as a society that we used to cling to and hold on to? And you feel in your heart that you've, you've lost something. You feel in your heart that our society, our culture, our nation has lost something and you're deeply concerned that it may be irretrievable. You're deeply concerned that it may be irretrievable. And there seems to be such a great dissonance between the way you think and the values that you hold and people today in modern society, you don't even know how to talk to them. You don't even know what to say. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's happening in your own home. It's happening with the children that you're raising. And you're thinking, I didn't raise you like this. I did not raise you like this. I did not raise you with this set of values. You know, they're coming home with homework and influences. And you're thinking, "This, this, this can't be good. How is it that we got to this place? I want to suggest to you, and this is not, this is not, uh, these ideas are not birthed in me, although I've thought about them for some time. There's a sociologist, his name is Philip Reef, and a, uh, a, an intellectual thinker in Christian circles named Mark Sayers. And they suggest that in Christian societies, there are three phases. They, they say three worlds, but it just co- gets complicated when you start talking about first world, second world, and third world, because we all think of that in terms of socioeconomic advancement. So I'm just going to use the word phases. For for the Christian society, there are three phases. There's the pre-Christian phase or the pre-Christian culture. This is the phase where a society is highly spiritual, focused on the supernatural, pagan, polytheistic, and pantheistic. There are places in the world today that have not been influenced by the monotheism of Judeo-Christianity that are just like this. They are like the Roman Empire pre-gospel. They are what Paul was dealing with, whether he was not in in the synagogue necessarily, but certainly in the marketplace and on the Areopagus. Then you have cultures and societies that are heavily influenced by Christianity, heavily influenced by Christianity. Uh, This is like the Western world. The Western society that we see today um, went through it. Uh, they, they underwent a shaping of their society where they were heavily influenced by Christian values. This, is, this was the world of the West. Uh, we call it Christendom in sociological circles, where the influence of the gospel permeated the society so significantly that you could say those societies were built on, the foundation of those societies were built on There was a framework of Christian values that shaped the culture. Now, in the West, what we have discovered is that there's been a philosophical, overarching way of thinking that has emerged during this Christian phase. It's called postmodernism. How many of you guys have heard of postmodernism? Raise your hand. Well, this has become, this isn't the way that we always thought because our culture used to be based in modernism, and so, you know, our thinking was rooted in uh, rationalism and the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Reformation, 
Um, but that has significantly changed, and we're now in a postmodern era. And I want to describe the way that the postmodern era thinks, because as I read this today, some of you are already reading ahead. You're bad, bad. Shame on you, okay? Um, because when I describe this, you're going to think, man, that's exactly what I feel like we're dealing with today. So postmodernism rejects any notion of objective truth and insists that all, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. And you're thinking today, wait a minute, that's an absolute. So yes, I mean, in, in its basic form, it contradicts itself. It rejects meta-narratives. A meta-narrative is an overarching story that seeks to explain why things are the way things are. And so this is why the postmodern thinker will reject out of hand the Christian because we come with this narrative saying that our Bible explains all of human history and not just the bookends of human history, but eternity itself. Uh, it rejects meta-narratives and embraces relativism, deconstruction and culture and identity politics. In postmodernism, tolerance is the supreme virtue and exclusivity is the supreme vice. And you know you experience that as a Christian on a daily basis, right? The idea out there in the world is like, hey, let's just be tolerant to everybody. And then you're like, hey, I'm a Christian. And all of a sudden you're getting rocks thrown at you and you know, people are slashing your tires, and our culture is tolerant of everything except Christianity. Truth is not grounded in reality or any authoritative text, but is simply constructed by the individual's mind. Christianity is rejected out of hand because of its truth claims. And so the minute that you're in a, a public setting and you start talking about propositional truth as absolute, immediately the conversation ends because the postmodern thinker doesn't believe that's even a possibility. The postmodern um, desire, the postmodern virtue, the postmodern purpose is for people to understand and discover their own identity. Like modernism was all based in being good, Postmodernism is all based in discovering who you are. And you can pursue that discovery, the postmodernists would say, any way that you want to. Because there, there are no absolute moral values. There is no such thing as sin. There is no meta narrative. There is no God story that's overarching that all of us have to be responsible to. In other words, hey, if it feels good to you, if it feels good to you, then just pursue that feeling because really no one can say that anything you are doing is wrong because there's no such thing as absolute truth. This has led us, I believe, into a post-Christian phase or a post-Christian culture. We are headed in that direction for sure. I think we're already there. And so you say, well, what, is, what does that look like? It is an emerging society that carries an anti-Christian posture through the aggressive secularization of society. By the way, secularism doesn't mean godless. It just means get rid of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secularism is the desire to stamp out uh, Judeo-Christianity. The fundamental societal institutions of the West, like family, school, and church that took their meaning in place from a basic Christian worldview shaped by Protestantism, are written out of the social order, right? This is why you see so much particular attack, not just against the church, but undermining, 
undermining the values that our education system used to be based on, and then also the undermining of the nuclear family. However, the secular culture attempts to hold onto the positive social values of Christianity only without its Christ. They want the blessing of Christian values without Jesus. You know, because this is the thing, the, the values of Scripture... The values that Jesus promoted are what has lifted our society up. And so, and so what the culture wants is the benefit of all those values, but just without the Jesus. Mark Sayer says it like this. He says, this is the Christian project continued with its values, but without Christianity. It's the kingdom without the king. And so you say, man, that, listen, that is it. That's the story that we're living in. That's the overarching philosophy, the, the way of thinking, not just, you know, in educational institutions. And I'll tell you right now, they're the epicenter of all this type of thinking, but also through art, through media, through music, through movies. This is what is influencing our society today. And the truth is this, the way that we reach people has shifted radically. Tim Keller said for the last thousands for the last thousand years, western church mission model was built on the premise that most people in society have some reason or pressure to go to church. So there were influences within our society that would be encouraging people or pressuring people to attend a place where the gospel is preached, where the bible is read, and he says that no longer exists. There may be pockets of that. There may be places in our country where that, that influence still is prevalent, but it certainly isn't in New York. It certainly isn't in San Francisco. It certainly isn't in Atlanta. It certainly isn't on an increasing basis even in the city of Las Vegas. He goes on to say the general beliefs that people have held over the years, a belief in a moral law, a belief in a transcendent God, a belief in an afterlife, and a belief in sin, most people don't believe those things any longer. And when you're ministering to people and you're, you're using kind of an a evangelistic technique that was based in response to modernism, like the four spiritual laws, it's a conundrum to you because now you're talking to people that don't even believe in the existence of the transcendent. You're talking to people who don't even believe in the, the framework of morality because they don't, they don't believe in a moral law because they don't believe in a moral lawgiver. You're talking to people who don't believe in an afterlife anymore. It is, it is ultimate hedonism. It's just my, satisfy yourself today because today is all you have. And then for the most part, you know, of course, people don't believe in sin. Now, we live in Sin City. We talk about sin all the time. People come here to sin, and that's one of the great advantages. <laughs> that may sound really weird to you right now, but if you want to share the gospel and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is one of those advantages because people come here to sin and you know as they do, they're left with a significant emptiness on the inside, which becomes an opportunity for us to tell them what the true answer is. I'm saying to you today, you can't just assume that you can connect the dots that you used to to lead people to faith in Christ because those dots don't exist anymore. You're like, hey, I'll just talk about the moral law and, and the transcendent God and the afterlife and sin, and, and hey, guess what? People don't even believe that any longer. 
So how are you going to reach them? You say, I'll just, I'll just get them, to, I'll just invite them to church. And my answer to you to that is, people aren't coming to church anymore. People aren't coming to church anymore. You can't just assume that our culture is going to desire to attend a church service where the Bible is going to be shared and the gospel is going to be preached because that's not the way our culture operates any longer. We have passed the era of come and see. Now you're thinking, what era are we in? We are now in the era of go and tell. We have got to bring the message to the people. We can't wait any longer for people just to come and attend a service. We need to be mobilized and we need to be equipped to be able to bring the message of the gospel in a way that's culturally relevant that people will understand. Does that make sense? That means that we need to read the, as you do that, you have to read the subcultures and the microcultures that are influencing the individual. This is what Paul did. Paul was aware of the big picture, and he also saw the cultural nuances of the Jewish person and of the Greek person. He was a man who was seeking to resonate a message, whether it was in the synagogue, the marketplace, or whether it was on the Areopagus, and he was ministering to real people. Like, as you get to the end of the story, what you discover is real people responded to the message of the gospel. Dionysius, Damaris, actual people. Dionysius' church history tells us became the bishop of Athens. He was powerfully, ultimately used by God. But what I love about the apostle Paul is he doesn't back away from the truth. He doesn't back away from the truth because, listen, everybody, the truth does not change. And we're not afraid to speak and to share the truth of God's word. What Paul, what Paul does do, what Paul does do is he says, hey, listen, I've checked you guys out, man. I've checked out your places of worship. I've cruised. I've learned. I've observed. I've paid attention. I've been listening. You are all together a very religious people. You know, there's a, st like, like, Solomon would say, God has placed eternity in your hearts. Paul doesn't just like hammer them or attack them. He uses their religiosity as a, as, as a bridge to lead them to real truth. He's like, I, I see that you have all of these altars, and I just want to let you know that you're a very religious people. Like there's a spiritual drive that's innate within you, but you know, there's an altar to the unknown God. You've missed, you've missed the one God. There is a God. There is a God that you know is out there that you don't know yet. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he begins to unpack biblical truth. He talks about God not being made with hands, not being fashioned out of wood or silver or gold, a self-sustaining God, an altogether um, amazing God, so much more significant than all of these false gods that they've been worshiping. He's so aware of what these people are thinking, he pulls in one of their own poets to reinforce the truth claims that he is making. Paul understands that culture is not monolithic, but that every individual has a unique experience in their culture. You know, you're at the workplace, and you got someone, a colleague from the Bible Belt, you got some, a colleague from, from New York, God bless your soul. You've got your hands full. I love New Yorkers. 
You got someone off the streets of Chicago. You're dealing with somebody who is same-sex attracted, and you're dealing with someone who's just transitioned their gender. These are wildly different people with wildly different influences. And let me tell you something, they all need Jesus Christ. These people have deeply held beliefs. They're living in the marketplace of competing ideas. The internet has changed everything. They've been urbanized by technology. They've been, the, the cell phone has, ur, has urbanized the globe. I can be in the most rural place in the Philippines or Brazil, and everyone has a cell phone, and everyone has access to the internet, and people in the most uh, rural places in the world, they are being urbanized by technology. I just want to say to you today, the gospel has the power to transform every life, but the approach that you take needs to resonate with the person to build bridges with them instead of walls, right? I, at, least I su- at least I suggest that to you. I suggest that to you. It's like, hey, pastor, that's a great idea, but you know, why should I do that? I say, well, because Jesus did. Jesus did. You say, well, give me an example. I say, thanks for asking. I will. I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. In John chapter 3, Jesus is ministering to a Jew. His name is Nicodemus. Jesus understands the context he's grown up in. Jesus understands the place of privilege that he has. And then Jesus tells him truth. Hey, Nicodemus, you, you're never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, dude, this is my paraphrase, dude, I don't understand. I don't understand that. How can you not understand that? And you are the teacher of Israel. How can you not understand that? And so what does Jesus do? He goes back to number 17, the story of the serpent in the wilderness, and he pulls this story into his dialogue with Nicodemus and uses it as a platform to speak one of the most, if not the most significant verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Like this is solid, straight up truth from the mouth of the son of God shaped in the context that this man Nicodemus, wayward as he was, would understand. And then in the next chapter, you got Jesus on his way to the Galilee, having to go through Samaria, and now he's talking to an altogether different person, altogether different influences. This is a Samaritan woman. She has got different religious influences, different social influences. She's got different moral influences. She's had five husbands. And the dude, this isn't like word for word, the dude that she's shacking up with in the moment She's not even married to. And Jesus uses her situation. He uses the circumstances in a glass of stinking water to build a bridge for this woman to understand that he is the one that can satisfy the needs in her heart. If you knew who it was who asked you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Tell me who this man is and where I can find this living water. Jesus is living water. Jesus is saying everything that your heart has desired, man, you've sought to fill your soul with relationship after relationship and sexual experience after sexual experience. And you know you've been dissatisfied, you've been disillusioned, it's impacted you socially, 
culturally, in your family, you're alone, you're disconnected, and the truth is this, what you've been longing for all along is me. I'm the only one who can satisfy your heart. I'm the only one who can provide for you living water that will cause you to never thirst again. I would venture to say that there is someone here today and you have been seeking to have your soul satisfied by what, by what the world has to offer you. And you've tried everything. You've tried everything. You've sought to satisfy yourself with ambition and upward mobility and opportunity and education. You've sought to satisfy yourself in experience and sexual experience. And not only has it left you empty, it has left you worse than empty. It has left you worse than empty. There's not just an emptiness in your soul. There's an angst. There's a grief. There's, there's a discouragement. You're wondering if there's anything out there that can really meet the need that exists within your heart. You're, you're, Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said something like this, and I'll give you the actual quote later. He, he intimated that God has created us with a God-shaped hole in our heart that only the Son of God can fill, right? And... And I just want to say to you today, you come to church and you've been searching, you've been striving, and the answer, the answer is not in a religion, it's not in a ritual, it's not in a series of laws, the answer is a person, his name is Jesus. Paul was talking about his willingness to be cognizant of the culture, the cultural moment, and the individuals that he was dealing with, and his, his willingness to build bridges. He said this, he said, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He, he qualifies this, though not being myself under the law. Paul is just, let me finish, that I might win those under the law. So Paul is saying, listen, for the Jewish person, for the Jewish person, I've, I've customized my approach. I understand the festivals, and so, so I participate in the festivals. I understand the emphasis of circumcision so as not to be an offense. I had Timothy circumcised. I'm not under the law anymore, but I'm aware of those cultural uniquenesses, and I meet those people where they're at so as not to build a wall to keep them out. And then he says, for the Gentile. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So he's like, for the Gentile, those outside of the law, I was cognizant of their microculture and their subculture and their overarching cultural moment. And Paul's like, it's not that I abandoned the law. I didn't go hang in the pub and get drunk and have sex with people just so I could be relevant to the culture. And I I got to tell you, sometimes people say that to me. I'm like, dude, what are, you, what are you doing going to the strip club? Hey, pastor, just ministering, bro. Bro, <laughs> someone's got to reach the stripper, dude. And so God's put that calling on my life. And, you know, I'm just present and dropping a couple shots and hanging out. I'm like, dude, what the heck are you talking about, man? Like, that is, that's not what Paul was saying, all right? 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So the final thing today is this. We need to reignite white-hot spiritual formation and a spirit of evangelism in our lives. I just want to take these three things, put them together, synthesize them for a moment, wrap up. We need to be aware of our cultural moment we need to read the subcultures and microcultures that influence the individual, and we need to reignite white-hot spiritual formation and a spirit of evangelism in our lives. These three things together. You know, the Apostle Paul, like I said, he understood culture, he understood the individual in front of him, and he used it to bring the truth. He used it to bring the message of the gospel because, listen, brothers and sisters, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms and changes people. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for I believe it to be the power of God unto salvation for those who believe first for the Jew and then for the Greek. We don't change the message. Paul boldly preached the power of the resurrection. But as he did that, listen, as he did that, he wasn't influenced by the culture. He influenced the culture. He influenced the culture. Let me, let me just say this real quick, okay? Just hang tight with me. I think a lot of people today, like I said, I want to go back. A lot of people today think, hey, you know what? Just wait for people to come to church. I mean, the church is growing. Church is growing. You know that the majority of church growth today is transfer growth? The majority of church growth today is transfer growth. It is not people being born again, it is people hopping from church to church. It's people hopping from church to church. Uh, Jim Symbol a years ago said 80% of church growth today is from people moving from one church to another church. And this is, this is like in the last four years, I'll tell you, like the, the deck has been shuffled. And I'm not saying to you today there aren't seasons in our life. Maybe we move to a new city or maybe we move to a different part of the city or maybe God is leading us somewhere else. Sometimes that happens. But you know, with, with politics and the pandemic, the reality is that there's been a shifting in the church. And there are some pastors who are like, man, this is awesome. My church has experienced 300% growth. And it's like, dude, that's not 300% people being born again and drawn into the kingdom of God. You've got 150 people from somebody else's church. Don't act like your church is growing. The people of God have just shifted from one church to another church. Hey, the truth today is this. The great missional movement that God wants to bring is going to be based in a white-hot faith. Jesus is the answer for every cultural moment a society goes through. Jesus is the answer. I want to encourage you guys today. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to tuck your tail and run. We don't have to think, you know, the culture's so messed up. Let's just go buy an island. We can inhabit it together. We can all just be Christians and sing kumbaya. No, it would be a freaking disaster, Okay. <laughs> It would be a mess. It would be a mess. We can barely live with each other as it is right now. It would be a total mess. We, we are not called to run from this cultural moment. We are called to influence. We are called to engage. We are called to be involved. And, and if you don't, if you're going through these points today and you're like, well, I don't really resonate with that, I just got to say to you, this is, th these are the roots of our movement. These are the roots of Calvary Chapel. This is what God did in the Jesus revolution. Before there was the infrastructure of the church, 
before there was the consistent verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible, which of course we are for, but before any of that, God surprised the people with a move of His Holy Spirit. And God caused that cultural moment to align with the message. You know, the, the hippies were thinking, peace and love, bro, peace and love, that's all we want. And they were searching for peace and love in a culture that couldn't offer it. And so there were people who came along and said, hey, you know, if you really want peace and love, it's found in a person. His name is Jesus. He's the answer. He's the answer that you're looking for. People in the 60s and 70s were saying, hey, community, man, we, just, we all need to be together. We need to be as one. For you old people, you remember the Coca-Cola song where they're all gathered in a circle, you know, the picture of community, the picture of communalism. And that whole experiment, how it failed, because the real community that God is building is an eternal community that is composed of the sons and the daughters of living God. You want real community. It's not found out in society. It's found right here among God's people. There was in that cultural moment an emphasis on music. It was the voice of the people. It was the way that ideas were spread. There was great influence and in the 60s and 70s, during the, during the Jesus Revolution, there was the birth of contemporary Christian music, where God took what was happening in the world and redeemed it for divine purposes. And there was a voice for the gospel that influenced thousands, if not millions. There was a culture that was looking for the transcendent. They were looking for something greater than what they were experiencing in the material world because modernism was all about materialism and materialism didn't satisfy the deep soul in a person's heart. And so in the 60s and 70s, they were looking for something beyond the transcendent. And so God raised up a group of people that said, hey, the transcendent is found in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Last one. Last one, last one, thanks for being patient, longer than I expected, but last one, they were looking for experience, and so they were dropping LSD, and they were smoking hashish, and they were hitting up with heroin, right? They were taking drugs because they wanted the experience. There was the sexual revolution where the idea was that if we could just expand our sexual experience, our soul will be satisfied. And then there was a, a group of people who came along and talked about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Spirit of God like a rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire resting on the disciples. And the people who were used who used to be steeped in all of these other experiences, when they experienced the power of God's Holy Spirit, they said, there is, no, there is no high. There is no high. There is no experience as mighty as experiencing the power of God's Holy Spirit. They were radically bold. They were sold out. They were white hot for their faith. They were following Jesus and his way. And because of that, because of that, God worked through that and brought a spiritual awakening. I read this morning, awake, awake, O arm of Israel. Awake, this, uh, the proclamation and the beseeching, awake, O God, who has done it in generations past. And the God who's done it before is the God who will do it again. Yes. Let's pray.